Wow. And all God's people say, what a great hymn. What a great hymn. So I want to open up, didn't plan to do this in either service, by telling you the story behind that hymn, if you do not know it. Written by Horatio Spafford. Horatio Spafford was a successful businessman from Chicago. And he uh, had sent his family, his wife and kids, across the sea. They had traveled by ship. And into their path came a storm, and that storm did uh, significant damage to that ship. As a matter of fact, several people died, and when Horatio's wife made it uh, across uh, that voyage, she sent him back uh, a telegraph that simply said, saved along. Their children had died in that voyage. And so Horatio left, and he went to meet her, and when he did, he told his captain what had happened and asked for the captain to let him know when they would arrive at the spot where that uh, uh, fateful incident had happened. The captain told him, and he stood there and penned the words of this hymn, It is well with my soul. This morning, we launch into a Christmas series, and this Christmas series is called Christ Before Christmas. We will walk through the Old Testament, and as we do, you and I will together see Christ show up in the most remarkable ways in the Old Testament. We will see him predicted there. And as we do, we will discover that God had a plan all along. Christ indeed was that plan. This morning's sermon is super simple in its intent, but also profound in its effect. It is simply titled, Why Jesus Was Born, and I'll give you three reasons why Jesus was born, and they arise out of Genesis 3 of all places. To put Genesis 3 in context, 1 and 2 are different perspectives on the creation. One a sequential and the other a more consequential account of the creation. And we get into Genesis 3 and this event happens. And we discover from the fall, as it is called, why Jesus was born. What we discover, first of all, is that Jesus was born because Satan is real. Jesus was born because Satan is real. Now the serpent, verse 1, was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. The word crafty by itself is not a negative word. It simply means subtle. So it's not necessarily negative. But what we discover here is the way Satan works. Satan chose the subtle serpent to do his subtle deed. He said to the woman, did God actually say... You shall not eat of any tree in the garden. Well, no, God didn't say that. Look at what God actually said, which is in Genesis 2, uh, 15 through 17. The Lord God took the man 
that's Adam, and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Notice what the serpent, what Satan, through the serpent, says to the woman. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? No, he didn't. That would be the answer. Satan subtly distorts the truth. It is not a front-on lie. It is a subtle deception. He cleverly twisted God's words. Notice the effect it had on Eve. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. God never said, neither shall you touch it. Eve adds that. Satan subtracted from God's word. Eve added to God's word. Henry Morris has, says, has said, it is always dangerous to alter God's word, either by addition, as do modern cultists, or cults you may think, or by deletion, as do modern liberals. All cults get their start in the Bible. They take a verse and they run amok with it, and they add to, and they develop their own religion around a verse, a single verse, a single idea. And then liberals delete they remove, they take out parts that might be inconvenient to them. Notice the progression of Satan's deception. Twisting the truth comes first, completely changing it follows. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God knowing good and evil. This now is an outright lie. We have gone from a subtle distortion of the truth to an outright lie. Story goes that a salesman was far away from home trekking down a country road when he saw a barn, and on the barn was a bullseye, and in the bullseye were all kinds of arrows. The salesman wondered what marksman could have done such great work. So he pulls off and engages somebody in a conversation and asks about the barn down the road with the arrows all in the bull's eye. Who did that, he asks. <laughs> the guy responds laughingly, Oh, He's not an excellent marksman. He just simply shot at the barn and then drew the bull's eye around all the arrows. That's exactly what Satan does and did. 
He said, let me change the target. Let me move it. I'll put all the arrows in that target. And when all the arrows are moved into the new target, it becomes the new norm. It becomes the new truth. It becomes reality. He still does that. He convincingly sets up a mirage. He convincingly convincingly sets up a, a, a new way of thinking that is both the addition and the subtraction from the word. And it becomes acceptable. What did Jesus say about Satan? He's talking to Pharisees in John 8. He doesn't have good words for them. He says, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. So we're about to get Jesus' take on Satan. Here he goes. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. What does Jesus say about Satan? He can't tell the truth. He is incapable. His character itself precludes the truth from coming out of his mouth. Perhaps you, in your scientific way of thinking, might say, I don't know that I could believe in Satan. Jesus did. Jesus was born because Satan is real. Jesus was born, secondly, because sin is real. Notice what happened. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was, be, was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Eve had so many trees to choose from, didn't she? Just one. That was a no. Years ago, I was in Dallas, Texas. I had traveled there uh, to visit Dallas Theological Seminary. Thought perhaps that's where I would go to seminary. And so I stayed on campus at DTS, and then I had some free time. So I thought, I'll just trek about, and I did. Not the safest thing to do, I discovered, at least then. I'm not sure how things are around the seminary now, but then it wasn't, but I left headed toward the Dallas Museum of Art. I had heard that there was a display of Russian icons. These things were 10 feet tall at least. They were a 1,000 years old, and they were Christian images, and I wanted to go see them. It was an opportunity. So I went and I walked into the Dallas Museum of Art and there they were beautifully displayed, many of them in this, uh, this traveling display. And then there were the signs, do not what? Touch. And immediately, what did I want to do? Touch. 
Isn't that amazing? Here I am in, in town to visit a seminary, thinking of becoming a, uh, or knowing that I'm going to be a pastor one day, and I go to the Dallas Museum of Art, and when the sign says, do not touch, everything in me wants to touch. I passed another, some other art. I didn't want to touch it, but I wanted to touch that. And rather than taking it in as I should have, everything that went through my mind was, how could you touch that? I wonder how you could do it. They had carefully placed every so many feet these guards, I guess, and their job was to keep idiots like me from touching. And so I'm just walking through, and I'm thinking, wow. And I thought, okay, just do this. Just get up close, pretend you're a scholar, and you know what you're looking for like you're studying the icon and you know what you're looking for and when you get up super close, move with your whole body, like all this went through my mind, no lie, move with your whole body and just do like that and nobody will ever know. And so sure enough, I, I got close, I looked in, I had nerdy scholar look on my face, I was checking it all out, I leaned in, I touched and no sooner than I did than this hand went on my shoulder. And this gruffy voice behind me said, the sign says, do not touch. And I turned to see the scariest woman on the planet. <laughs> she, she meant business. And I was nailed. Why? Why did I want to touch? Sin is attractive. There, there's something about touching when the sign says not to, you can walk down the same hall day after day, but as soon as somebody paints it and puts a sign up, what do you want to do? Make sure it's wet. Is it really wet paint? You've not touched that wall in years, but that day you will. Jesus was born because sin is real. You may not believe in Satan, but I am convinced if you have any sense you believe in sin. Why? Because you struggle with it. If every one of you was honest, and I were to ask you a question, have you done anything in your life you wished you hadn't? You'd say, oh yeah. So what is sin? John Piper's definition is comprehensive. Sin is any feeling or thought or speech or action that comes from a heart that does not treasure God over all other things. Any thought, any feeling, any speech or action that comes from a heart that does not treasure God over all other things. That's sin. Anybody guilty? What does sin do? We hear in this, we see in this first interaction what sin does. Sin promises what it cannot deliver. Notice when she saw that it was good for food, a delight to the eyes, and it would make one wise. It was none of that. Sin promises what it can never deliver. The addict thinks, 
Well, if I can get one more drink, if I can, if I can experience one more high, if I can climb up one more rung of the ladder, sin promises what it can never deliver. Secondly, sin spreads to where it can never be contained. She also gave some to her husband. It wasn't enough for Eve to enjoy the sin alone, was it? She gave some to her husband. She wanted him to share in it. Sin is that way. It, it seldom operates alone. It almost operates, always operates in partnership. I would also say to you this morning that your sin has ripple effects. Don't buy the lie that your sin will not affect others. It does. And will. Thirdly, sin reveals what can never be concealed. The eyes of both were opened. We refer to this, writers do, as the loss of innocence. That's what happens. Sin reveals what can never be concealed. Sin spreads to where it can never be contained. Sin promises what it can never deliver. As a matter of fact, in the very next chapter, verse 7, it says, and if you do not do well, sin is what, class? Where is it? Crouching at the door. It's not knocking on the door. It's sneaking in. Sin is like the million ladybugs in your house right now. You didn't open the door when they knocked. They found their way in, didn't they? That is sin. It crawls in. It cowers underneath. That is sin. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Sin will not live. Sin will not stay where it cannot rule. It won't. It does not bargain. It will have its way or it will go away. There, there's no in-between. Well, if we stop there, this is a bad in human history. Number three, Jesus was born because God is real. God is real. What will God do? This is the pressing question. I don't know if this is exactly how it happened, but if I look at the history prior to this, as much as we know, there was another similar incident in heaven when Lucifer was his name, decided he didn't want to follow Jesus anymore and submit to his authority, and so he 
pushed back. He resisted and he resented and when he did, he was cast out of heaven along with a third of the angels who followed him. So I wonder now, are the angels leaning over the balcony of heaven thinking, what happened? And what will the Father do? You see, when God created Adam and Eve, he created them in his image. They are the only image bearers of God on the planet, not the animals, not the angels. The question comes, what will he do? Will Adam and Eve, like Lucifer, be banned forever? Will their names change like Lucifer, which means morning star, change to Satan, which means adversary? Is there a name change in order now? Will God annihilate them? According to the writer of Hebrews, I think it is, he says angels long to look into these things. And are the angels who do not know the future as you and I do not know, do, are they wondering at this moment, longingly looking, waiting, anticipating God's next move? So what does he do? Four, four reactions or responses. I like that were better. I see from God here. God came walking. He came walking. Verse 8, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. I want to say to all parents in the room, This is the first parenting lesson in Scripture. Some notes we can take. God came walking. Secondly, God came talking. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Well, let's talk about what God says before we get into what they say. God asks questions that he already knows the answers to. Don't know if that's occurred to you, but he does. But if you've parented for any length of time, you do this too. Your kids mess up. You know what they've done and how they did it. So what do you do? Well, son, uh, what happened? Well, there's probably evidence as to the answer to that question. And so he gives the evidence. Where were you? Well, it was here. And you go through that. Why, Why do we do that as parents? We're assessing our kids' heart. That's why parents ask questions they know the answers to. So now all you kids know. 
who are sitting in here this morning, when mom or dad ask you questions and they know what you've done, they're assessing your heart. They know what you've done, but the way you answer tells why. And so what happens is Adam doesn't blame Eve. He blames God. (laughs) Did you notice what he looked at God and said? This woman you gave to me. What? Isn't it amazing that in his sin, his sin is God's fault. It's his fault. Do you know how we do that today? And it's addressed in the, New Te- in the New Testament, no temptation has seized you except that which is common to man. And God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you can stand, but in every temptation will make a way of escape so that you can stand up under it. When I sit with people and I counsel them and they're not yet done with their sin, this is what they say to me. They say to me in that meeting, Other people don't struggle like I do. Do you know what that means? When an alcoholic sits and says, no, 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 I I go immediately. No, no temptation has seized you except that which is common to man. Oh, there are plenty of people who struggle like you do. There are plenty, but don't buy that lie. Don't buy that lie that you have a certain circumstance that somehow eclipses all of humanity. Satan loves for you to buy and believe that. You do not. You do not. Well, as someone said to me recently, you don't know my mind. Amen and praise God. And you don't know mine. And amen and praise God but I know your heart and I know mine. Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. God came walking and he came talking. But third, God came cursing. He did. He starts with the culprit with Satan because you have done this. Cursed are you above all livestock and all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. The word cursed is not saying swear words. To curse is to invoke God's power to bring harm to someone. God, God's curse shows that he's just. He will deal with sin as it deserves. But notice that God never cursed Adam or Eve. As a matter of fact, Eve wasn't called Eve yet. I don't know if you've thought about that. She was simply called the woman at this point. He never cursed Adam, and he never cursed Eve. He cursed the ground that Adam would work. It would be difficult toil in work now. Adam had already been working, but now work would be hard. He cursed childbirth. I wonder what the angels are thinking now. God doesn't change their names. He doesn't curse Adam and Eve. He doesn't cast them out. 
what he did next is outlandish, unthinkable, unbelievable, but it's who he is. Fourth, God came preaching. He came preaching. Here's the sermon in a verse. Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. In Christian theology, this is a hefty verse with much written about it. I have some of my former Old Testament students here. They would know this verse as the Proto-Evangelion, the first good news. It's the first good news. Well, what is so good about it? Let's take the verse apart. I will put enmity between you, that means Satan, and the woman. All right, which woman here? It's a definite article, the woman. So Eve, yes. Mary, eventually, the mother of Jesus. And between your offspring, Satan, and hers, Well, who is Satan's offspring? You see, there are thoughts that this refers to Satan himself, and indeed it can, but in the book of Revelation, there is someone called the Antichrist who emerges, a real figure, the spawn of Satan. I would say that's what this refers to, and her offspring is Jesus. He shall bruise your head, Jesus, and you shall bruise his heel, Satan. You will bruise Jesus' heel. Well, how? Well, when Eve has offspring, ultimately Christ will be born. And when Christ is born, he came to die. He'll die. I'm reading John Stott's The Cross of Christ right now. And, and he, he'll die. He came to die. And so when he comes to die, at that moment of death, Satan strikes his heel. And he thinks he's won. Three days later, there's a resurrection, isn't there? That's what we've sung about this morning. Christ rises from the dead. But the story doesn't stop there. He ascends into heaven. And the story doesn't stop there. He intercedes for you today. He prays for all who are his today. But the story doesn't stop there. One day, the crucified, resurrected, ascended, uh, interceding Christ will return. Amen? He's coming back. Look at Revelation 12, verse 9. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Revelation 22. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. Jump down to verse 7. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive, Jesus said that's all he knows to do, the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. 
it seems almost to be over. Satan, just like at the crucifixion, within the three days between Friday and Sunday, seemed almost over, but keep reading. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. You've got an army that seems to be so big it's like the sands of the seashore. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them, and the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. That's the end of Satan. No more. That's a crush or a bruise to the head. You see, a bruise to the heel, same word in Hebrew, bruise in both cases. Bruise to the heel, bruise to the head. It's just that the effect of a bruise to the head is life-ending. Ultimately, Jesus triumphs. Uh, That's what Christmas is about. This is the first good news. You say, well, what do I do? I would just say to you that the Christ who came and died and rose again and ascended and is interceding and will return is available to you today. And you can turn to him, receive him, and he will intercede for you and one day you will watch as he triumphs ultimately over Satan. Our praise team is going to come. There's, there is a uh, Christmas carol that for many, many years I thought was a Christmas carol, but it in fact is not. It is a second return carol. The words uh, we'll see on the screen go like this. Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her what? Not her baby, her king. The writer of this carol looked forward to what I wrote, read about in Revelation 20. Let's keep going. He rules the world with truth and grace. That is yet to be, but it one day will, and makes the nations prove. So we're going to sing that. And to my left and right are tables, and we have trained people and staff who'd love to pray with you. And this may be a strange sermon to come to Christ under, or maybe it isn't. I would just say to you this morning, if you sit here and you don't know Christ, well, you can. And he can rule and reign in your heart. And this can be the first Christmas with Christ. What a joy that would be, amen.